0: Wednesday nights we're talking about the great doctrines of our faith. These foundational truths, these foundational realities that we stand on, that we uh, adhere to, that we cling to, that we rejoice in. These are the great doctrines of our faith. It says over in Jude that God has delivered to the church, uh, to the saints... uh, the faith, that, that that body of truth, those body that body of doctrines. And, and we're talking about um, that on Wednesday nights and trying to talk about it in a way that, that we understand its relevance, or these doctrines relevance, their relevance for our lives. And last week we began to talk about the doctrine of salvation and we're talking about the doctrine of salvation under three headings and we covered two last week. So, The first question that we answered was, why does a person need to be saved? And you should have a blank filled in there. Sin separates us from a holy God, and because we sin, we deserve His punishment and wrath. The second question was, how is a person saved? And we talked about the historical event of the gospel, what actually happened in human history, and how we are to respond to appropriate what Christ did on uh, our behalf, repentance and Faith, and the third question is: What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? What are some things that happen uh, in in our, in our in our souls, our spiritual lives, and our in our relationship with God when we are saved? And so, we're going to answer that question under three different headings. We're going to talk about what happens. This is exciting. I love this stuff. We're going to talk about what happens at the moment of conversion, the moment a person calls the name of Jesus, places their faith and trust in Him. Then we're going to talk about the ongoing work of salvation. Okay, What happens in your life as a follower of Christ. And then we'll talk about our future glory. What's coming for those that are saved. Okay, So those are the three different uh, headings. And I'm excited to talk to you about those. We're going to start in Romans chapter 3. So turn there with me. Romans chapter 3. Some people say that Romans 3, 20-26 uh, is, is, is one of the most important theological passages in the Bible. There's so much here about uh, Jesus' death and what it means for us and, and what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be uh, saved. And so, before we read Romans 3, go back to your notes there. And notice we're under the heading, The Moment of Conversion... And at the moment of conversion, the first thing that happens or something that happens is justification. That's that first blank, justification, justification. All right, so let's, let's talk about what justification is, and we're going to start by reading Romans chapter 3, verse 20. The Bible says, and this is important, "...for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Now just look at me for a minute. Why is that true? Why is it true that no one can be made right with God by obeying the works of the law? Why? Because no one can do it perfectly. Right? Sin. We are born with a sin nature because have a sin nature. We sin. It all goes back to sin entering the world in the Garden of Eden. So no, no matter how hard we try... No matter, no matter how many good days we have, or good weeks we have, because we are sinners, we're going to have some bad days and some bad weeks too, right? And so the law could save you if you could keep it perfectly, but you can't, right? If, if you perfectly kept the law, you'd never be separated from God. But we're all separated from God because we have all sinned. So that phrase, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You cannot earn your salvation through obedient living. It's just not going to happen. Okay? Very clear here. And some would say, well, okay, what's the purpose of the law? Is the law of no value? Well, look at the next phrase. This is important. He says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Over in Romans 7, Paul says something very interesting. He says, I've read the command... Do not covet. And when I read that command and then thought about my own life, I saw that I'm a coveter. I've, I've disobeyed the command to not covet. And the law revealed to me how much of a coveter I really am. And so the law helps us to understand our need for salvation, it helps us to understand how far short we fall. Over in Galatians 3, it says, The law, listen to this. The law is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. It's the tutor that shows us we need a Savior. That's why it's important we talk about things like the Ten Commandments. We need to teach these are God's expectations for a life that pleases and honors Him. And then when we learn the Ten Commandments and we look at our own lives held up beside the Ten Commandments, we see, uh uh-oh, God said, do not lie, I've lied. God said, do not covet, I've coveted. God says, honor your father and mother, I've dishonored them. God says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, I have. You know, we could go through the Ten Commandments and see where we have fallen short, where we have sinned. So the law has great value in that it shows us the character and nature of God, and it shows us where we fall short. But listen, you cannot be saved by keeping the law because you cannot keep the law perfectly. Everybody got that? So how are we made righteous? How do we have a relationship with a righteous God, a holy God? We'll keep reading. Verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known apart from the law. So here's what he's saying. We may not get past justification tonight. Here's what he's saying. There is a way to be made righteous. There is a way to be rightly related to God apart from the law. The laws don't get it done, so you need another way. And here it is. He says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, he speaks here of the righteousness of God through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So you can't earn it, okay? You can't earn it because you're not perfect. Your sin separates you from God. No matter how hard you try... You are imperfect. You have fallen short of his glory. There is another way, though, to have a right relationship with God, to be reconciled to a holy God, to have his righteousness, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now he's going to expound on it a little bit. Look what he says next. There's no distinction, for all of sin fall short of the glory of God. We've established that. And are, these are the people that have believed in Christ and are justified. Everyone say justified. Justified is a a legal term. It's a a courtroom term. It means to be declared righteous. Alright? He says these folks that believe in Jesus are declared righteous because they've earned it. Is that what it says? No. They're declared righteous by what? His grace. This is right relationship with God that is available through faith in Jesus is a gift it's not something we earn it's not something we achieve so we are justified by his grace as a gift a free gift of God through made available through the redemption That is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means to be set free through the payment of a price. So Jesus came and paid a price so we could be set free, so we could have this relationship with God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And look what it says next. Whom God put forward. God offered His Son. He put Him forward as a... Oh, this is so good. As a propitiation by His blood. Now, the word propitiation, it's a big word. It's a very, very important word. And the word propitiation basically means to satisfy the wrath of God. So when Jesus died on the cross, he took the wrath of God that we as imperfect sinners deserve. He satisfied God's wrath. All of God's wrath was poured out upon Christ in our place. That's what the word Propitiation means. There's some beautiful connections with the Old Testament because the the Hebrew word for mercy seat translates something like propitiation. They would cast the uh, they would cast the blood of the the Passover uh, or or the, the the Day of Atonement uh, scapegoat. Uh, they would they would take the uh, the blood of that of that sacrifice. They would and they would would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and that was a symbolic way to satisfy God's wrath. The mercy seat was where the blood fell, and Jesus shed his blood uh, to, to satisfy the wrath of God. And just to make sure we're getting it, he says it again, this righteousness, this right standing with God, having our wrath directed towards Christ where we don't receive God's wrath, it is to be received by what? Faith by faith. Now, this, Jesus being put forward as a propitiation. Jesus dying on the cross. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. I love this. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So a lot of people think, you know what, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven because, you know, I'm not perfect. But who is? And, you know, I'm a pretty good old guy or a pretty good old gal. And so, you know, I'm going to stand before God and he's going to say, I know you're not perfect. He's going to kind of wink at my sin and say, "Just, just come on in. Or he's going to take my sin and kind of sweep it under the rug, right? Listen to me. If God ignored our sin, he would cease to be holy. And God is perfectly holy. So sin has to be punished. Or he loses his attribute of holiness. And and what Paul is saying here is this. The cross, Jesus shedding his blood as our propitiatory sacrifice. The cross was a way for God to be holy and punish sin but also to be loving and provide salvation for sinners. The cross, look at that last verse, verse 26, was a way for God to be just, holy, punishing sin, but also a justifier, making sinners righteous before himself, bringing sinners into relationship with him. Just and the justifier of the one, here it is again, who has faith in Him. Jesus. So the cross is where God's justice and God's love meet. And our sin is punished because Jesus took our punishment for us, and salvation is provided through his death, and we can be saved because of the cross. There's a wonderful older song by Steve Green. It's one of my favorite songs. It's called My Soul Found Rest, and he says, In that song, in the cross my soul found rest by Christ's wondrous sacrifice. For justice met with mercy there. And God was satisfied. And there my soul found rest. And so justification means we are declared righteous because Jesus was punished in our place. A declaration of a right standing before God. So at the moment you were saved... You were declared righteous, sins forgiven, a relationship with the holy God, no wrath to fear because Jesus took it all for you, a propitiation by his blood. He shed his blood so your sins could be washed away. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Courtroom term, it's a legal term. You have a right relationship with God. Justification. Now, what are the implications of this doctrine? Well, look there in your notes. This doctrine enables us to offer genuine hope to unbelievers who know they could never make themselves righteous before God. This doctrine enables us to offer genuine hope to unbelievers who know they could never make themselves righteous before God. If a person is honest, they know that there's something that's gone wrong in their own life, in the world. They know that that there's something that's not quite right, which is by the way, why you can travel anywhere in the world and find people practicing religion, right? Because they're trying to figure out what went wrong and how they can make it right. There's this this underlying fear that humanity has, Hebrews 2 says, of death. Because there's an uncertainty of, of what's beyond death. And... There's different concepts of God and the gods, and people have different views about that. But they don't, they don't, they don't, they're not sure that when they die, they'll be right with whatever lies beyond death. And so all these different religions try to figure out ways to, to prepare for that moment when they'll stand before God, right? The Bible says you're not good enough to stand before God. Your only hope is that Jesus took God's wrath for you and that you receive him personally... And his shed blood is applied to your spiritual account, and you are declared righteous by God. And so this offers this, this, this um, reality helps us to offer hope to folks. Uh, we can say to people, your life is broken. You're not perfect. Welcome to the club. Which, by the way, when someone comes to church, they're not coming to a room full of people that got it all together, are they? They're coming to sit. By a bunch of folks who got issues, starting with Pastor Wade. And our only hope is we have a Savior. His name is Jesus. He's declared us righteous. And so, no matter what anyone is going through, no matter what their background is, no matter what sins they've committed, we could say there is hope. You can be declared righteous because Jesus took your punishment for you if you will just accept it. Another practical implication. This doctrine gives us assurance that God will never make us pay the penalty for sins that have been paid for by Christ. In other words, we don't have to fear God's wrath. Right? God's wrath was fully poured out upon Christ who died in our place. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. It's been been satisfied. Jesus is our propitiation. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. We know that we are rightly related to him. That's justification. Okay? Another thing that happens at the moment of conversion, I'll try to go a little bit faster, is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now turn over to Romans 5. Romans 5, where he talks about this doctrine. Verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, there's that word again, justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Because Jesus took God's wrath in our place. Now look what it says in verse 10. 4 If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So he's speaking here of the doctrine of reconciliation. And and notice what he says there. He says in verse 10, while we were enemies. Before we met Christ, the Bible says we were enemies of God. Enemies of God. Why? Because God's holy, perfect, just, righteous. And he's told us what he expects from our lives. He's told us how to live. He's told us what's right and what's wrong. And we have rebelled against a holy God. That is enmity towards God. We are separated from God. And that's all of our condition before we meet Christ. We have have rebelled against a perfectly holy God. In fact, it says over in Romans 1 that God gives us all of this light... All of this information about himself. He just just keeps giving light, giving light. And humanity said, I don't want to hear that. Romans 1 used the word suppress. We suppress the light and turn to the darkness. Instead of worshiping the creator, we worship the creation. And our foolish hearts are darkened and we're separated from God. And so before we met Christ, we were enemies. But in Christ, because he died for us, he paid the penalty for our sins... It says we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. The word reconciliation means we've been brought into a relationship with God. It means, here's what it means, if you are a Christian, God is now your friend. Now think about that. You are a friend of God. You've been reconciled. Jesus says over in John 15 that we are friends of God. And that is a... A a breathtaking reality that we can say we are friends of God. We don't deserve it. But Jesus made a way for us to be brought into this reconciled relationship. Through Christ, here's the practical implication. Through Christ you have become a friend of God. And that is an amazing reality. There's a third thing here. And it's adoption. What happens in the moment of conversion? You're justified. You're reconciled. You're adopted. You're adopted. Uh, Let's look in Galatians. Galatians 4. There's several passages we could go to, but look in Galatians 4 with me. Galatians 4, verse 4. Galatians 4, verse 4. Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, speaking of Jesus, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir through God. And Ephesians 1 says that this adoption occurs in Christ. So when you place your faith in Christ at that moment, the moment of conversion, you are adopted by God. You are you're declared to be a son or daughter of God. Now, it would be enough, wouldn't it, if at the moment of conversion, all God did was just justify us. If he just said, you're declared righteous, you can go to heaven when you die, that'd be enough. I mean, we would just rejoice over that truth alone but not only does god justify us he makes us his friends and not only does god make us his friends he adopts us into his family i mean this is amazing what god does for us in jesus christ adopted i i read this quote recently and i and i read so much sometimes i i forget who said it so I don't remember who said this but it was, it was, it was something to this effect that Jesus how do you say it um, let me think for a minute um, oh when we're in the courtroom of God one day because of Jesus it will not be a sentencing no wait here it is when we we need to edit this out later. When we become Christians, Jesus turns the courtroom from a sentencing to an adoption ceremony. Something like that. Which is, which is pretty cool, right? I have I have some really good friends that have um, that have adopted internationally. My brother's adopted internationally, and I have some really good close friends that have adopted domestically. And there is this moment where you stand before an official, before a judge, and they make the decree of adoption. And at that moment, it's over. It's done. Nothing can change it. Uh, it, It's a forever deal. When the judge makes that declaration, adoption is a sure thing. And it's a, a joyous moment for families. And when we are saved, we are adopted. Now, what are the practical implications of adoption? First of all, prayer. I mean if God is our father that means something for our prayer life. And and Jesus really makes this clear over in Luke 11 when he's teaching teaching us how to pray. And you know Jesus says things like this. God is a perfect father. And even imperfect fathers try to bless their children. So Jesus says, what kind of father if their kid asks for a loaf of bread will give them a stone? Right? I mean, even imperfect fathers aren't going to do that. I mean, most people of goodwill would not give their kid a stone if they asked for bread. Or what father, when their kid asks for a fish, is going to give them a snake? And here's the point Jesus makes. If you, being imperfect fathers, try to bless your children by answering their request, how much more... Will your perfect heavenly father try to bless you by answering your requests? Isn't that cool? So because you're a child of God, you can ask with confidence that God will do what's best for you. And that God has the resources to answer you and to help you and to provide for you and to protect you. And so there's this confidence we have as God's children when we pray but but then there's this another aspect of adoption this isn't quite as delightful but it's very important and it is the aspect of discipline discipline when we become god's children god treats us like a good father treats his children and that means when we get out of line god will intervene sometimes in painful ways to get us back on the right path. And Hebrews 12 says this is a reflection of God's love. That, that, that you know a good father here on this earth is going to discipline his ch- children so that they will not engage in destructive behavior. And again, how much more will our God intervene when we go the wrong direction to get us back on the right path? That's called discipline. It's not condemnation. It's not wrath. Jesus paid for that on the cross. It's God helping us as his children get back on the right path when we stray. It's not pleasant. Hebrews 12 says it. It's not pleasant at the moment, but it bears the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Aren't you, now listen, aren't you glad that when you become a Christian, God doesn't say, hey, welcome, you're going to heaven when you die, Welcome to the family. Good luck. Aren't you glad God doesn't say that? When you are saved, God enters into a relationship with you and He is intimately and intricately involved in your life all the time. He doesn't leave you to yourself. Aren't you glad? So when you begin to stray, God doesn't say, Oh man, look at them. How disappointing. No, God actively engages and disciplines us to get us back on the right path. And I've been through that in my life. You've been through it in your life. If you think about it, there have been some times as a Christian where you strayed and God, maybe through some painful circumstances, got your attention, right? Why? Because He loves you. He's your Father. And he's not going to leave you to yourself. I tell you what be, would be scary is if God just left us to ourself and said, Do what you want to do. Go your way and uh, hope it turns out okay for you. That would be terrifying. But God loves us and is intimately involved in our lives. That's an implication of adoption. Let's go very quickly to the ongoing work of God. And we'll uh, we'll land this plane in a moment. The ongoing work of God. So at the moment of conversion, we're justified, we're reconciled, we're adopted. Now when I was saved at nine years of age, I couldn't have articulated any of that other than to say, God saved me, right? I mean, that's all I knew at that moment. But now when I look back through the lenses of Scripture, I know that at the moment of conversion, those things were spiritual realities in my life. But what does God continue to do in our life after we're saved? This is called sanctification. Sanctification. And and sanctification is, and you, you want to write this down, Sanctification is the process whereby you are made more and more like Jesus. It's the change process in your life whereby God is making you more like Jesus. At the moment of conversion, the Bible says, we are born again. And so we are, at that moment, babes in Christ. Correct? We need to grow. And sanctification is the process of... Growth. And and by the way, this is going to happen in your life. Over in Philippians chapter one, verse six, the Bible says that he who began a good work in you will complete it. When uh, when God was when God, when my dad was teaching me how to mow, and we we yeah, you know, I grew up in Perry, Florida, and we had we lived on we had acres of property and we had a big yard. And we had this little tiny, you know, I ride by people nowadays with those big fancy turnaround mowers, you know, and they're about, you know, eighty inches wide, and and they're people are zipping around and they're mowing, you know, and I think about I had this little tiny, it's about this wide. It was a riding lawn mower, but it's about this wide, it's a little snapper mower, and I mowed acres and acres of grass with that thing. But I'm not complaining, I'm just telling you what you know what happened. But I would mow and and after I would mow, I'd go in and tell dad I was done. And I hated the next part because he would come out and inspect. And I'm telling you, if there was one sprig of grass on, you know, acres of yard, he would find it. Like he would walk around and he would find that one little sprig of grass and be like, hey, you need to get that, need to get that, need to fix that, need to do it. Have you weed it yet? You know? And I hated the inspections because he would always find something. But my dad was trying to teach me a lesson. He's trying to teach me, Wade, finish what you start. When you, when you start something, finish the job. Get the job done. Well, aren't you glad that God always finishes what he starts? Doesn't leave it undone. Doesn't leave it incomplete. That, that includes your life and my life. God finishes what he starts. And that that is called the work of sanctification. Now, let's do this real quickly. We'll save glorification for next week because there is a lot in glorification we need to talk about. Let's talk about the three the three parts of sanctification, how sanctification actually works, the, the nuts and bolts, if you will, of how this growth process happens in your life and in my life. Uh, the first part is, is God's part. It's what God does. I mean, God is ultimately the change agent. We can't change apart from God's power and God's activity in our lives. Um, look over in First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five, another Pauline epistle. Right after Colossians. And go to the very end of that book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and look in verse 23. And this is a benediction, kind of a closing statement in this letter. And this, is, this expresses Paul's desire for the Christians in Thessalonica. And this may have been one of the first letters that Paul wrote, by the way, to a church. It's one of his earliest letters. Now, May the God of peace himself, that's emphatic in the original language, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at the next verse. Oh, I love this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So Paul's saying, may God change you and mature you and perfect you and complete you and make you more like Jesus. And guess what? It's going to happen. He's faithful. He's going to do it. So there is God's part. You listen, you cannot change without the power of God actively working in your life. Amen. Can't change yourself. You need God. Do it. And if anything good happens in your life, it's God doing it. It It's God's part in our sanctification. But secondly, there's our part. There's our part. Um, There's a part we play. God is a God of ends, He has purposes and plans. One of those ends is to make you like Jesus. In fact, over in Romans chapter 8, it says that He's predetermined, that you'll be conformed to the image of His Son. So He's doing that in your life. He's predetermined, predestined that you're going to be made to be like Jesus. That's pretty cool, right? So God's a God of ends, but He's also a God of means. And God has given us the means through which He works to make us more like Jesus. One of those is the Bible. John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. He says, John 17, 17, um, Sanctify them in the truth. Change them by truth. Then he says, your word is truth. The Bible, one of the ways we're changed, God has ordained the means, we are changed by interacting with the word. It's just, you're not going to see accelerated Christian growth apart from consistent commitment to saturate yourselves with the Scriptures. Amen? The Bible is so very important for your Christian growth. And and, and that's our part, to employ the means God has given us. Prayer is a means God has given us to grow. So we want to employ those means through which God works. Uh, to grow us and make us more like Jesus. So let me show you this. Look over in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse, look in verse 12. Romans chapter 8 verse 12. Boy, I love Romans chapter 8. Just, I don't even get started on Romans 8. Because if I get started on Romans 8, we'll be here a while. But... It's just a great chapter. I heard one theologian say it like this. He said, if he had to choose, if he had, you know, was on an island somewhere and he had to just take one part of the Bible, if he had to choose between the Old and New Testament, he'd take the New Testament. And if he had to choose a book in the New Testament, he'd choose the book of Romans. If he had to choose a chapter from that book, he'd choose Romans chapter 8. So it's, just, it's, a, it's a, just a glorious chapter. Look what it says in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That's our old sin nature. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, that's the, the power of God in your life, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... You will live for all are led by the Spirit of God or sons of God. So there's God's activity, what God does, His power. There's also our part that we play in that we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're to actively seek to change, to employ those means God has given us. And, and Jerry Bridges really helped me with this um, to, to understand sanctification uh, through an illustration About God's part and our part. And he said, um, he said, sanctification is like a seed growing. So think about a farmer. A farmer plants a seed in the ground. Say it's uh, um, corn. They plant a, a, a seed and they want to grow corn, all right? They put the seed in the ground. Now the farmer has a role to play, right? make sure it gets proper water, sunlight, pesticides to kill off bugs. They, they cultivate. They cultivate the soil. They cultivate to do everything they can for this seed to grow into a stalk of corn. But at the end of the day, the farmer can't make the seed grow. Right? I mean, God's the one that provides the miracle of a seed growing into a fruit-bearing or vegetable-bearing plant, right? Only God can do that. That's why, maybe you have, I've never met an atheist farmer. I haven't. Have you ever met an atheist farmer? I mean, farmers, they, listen, farmers get this. Like, they got some work to do, and they work hard, but at the end of the day, man, they need some help. They need God to come through and make that seed grow, right? That's sanctification. We have a role to play. We cultivate our hearts. We read the Bible, we pray, we focus on God, we fight against our sin, we we cultivate our spiritual lives, but at the end of the day, it's the power of God that changes us to be more like Jesus. Does that make sense? So God has a part, we have a part, but there's one final thing. There's the church's part. The church's part. That's why we need to be involved in local churches. Look over in Hebrews with me very quickly. Hebrews chapter 10 Hebrews chapter 10. Look in verse 24. And let us, talking to the body of Christ, Christians, let us consider... How to stir one another to love and good works. And so it is the job of the church. It's our job to consider how we can stir each other, get each other fired up about Jesus. That's what it's saying there. Not, verse 25, neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If someone says, the Bible doesn't say you have to go to church, Hebrews 10, 24, or 25 begs to differ. The Bible very clearly says, do not neglect meeting together. And this is not just some legalistic command. There's purpose here. That we need to meet together because we need to be encouraged. We need to meet together because we need to be exhorted to, to run after Jesus and live the right way and say no to sin and say yes to God and live with purpose and passion. We don't neglect meeting together because we need each other. We need to stir one another up to love and good works. So that's why it's so important that... That we connect with a local church. That we have a body of believers around us who are cheering us on. Now, there's probably, maybe, there, there may be somebody in your neighborhood, but probably not a lot of people in your neighborhood are cheering you on to pursue Jesus. Maybe some, but not a lot. And, and, and there may not be many people in your job, and your workplace, that are just cheering you on to pursue Jesus. The church is where we come together and we get that encouragement that we need that we're not getting anywhere else we we need that encouragement to keep on keeping on to to live boldly and faithfully for the glory of Christ. We need the church. We need to get together. We need to assemble together so that our hearts can be stirred up to love and good works. So when it comes to sanctification, there's God's part. He's the only one that can change you. He does the changing. There's our part to avail ourselves to the means through which God works. And there's the church's part where we get that encouragement that we need to uh, keep following Jesus. It's, it's very, very important. As soon as I say this, you'll be trying to think of an exception. And you know I'm sure there are exceptions to this because there are people maybe in persecuted countries or in certain circumstances that don't have access to a local body of believers. So, I mean, you could find exceptions to what I'm about to say, but, but I'll, I'll just make the statement. Uh, I've never met, I've never met a person that's on fire for Jesus and living faithfully for Jesus disconnected from a local church. I've never met a person like that. All the people I know that are hot-hearted for Jesus are involved in local church. That's just, that's just as simple as I can put it. So it's very important because we need that. God, there, you, you will not find the concept of a Lone Ranger Christian in the Bible. It's all about community. It's all about our need for each other. And so I hope you'll uh, see it like that. Uh, one of my favorite times in, um, in school, growing up in high school, was we'd have pep rallies. And pep rallies were fun because, you know, you get to see your friends, you get out of class, and you're cheering for the football team or whatever, and and uh, there's the band and the cheerleaders, and you know, it's a pep rally, and you get everybody fired up for the big game, you know, I mean... In 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 a a manner of speaking, when we get together on Sundays, and it's it's a pep rally. Like we're getting each other fired up, right? To to get excited about Jesus. We we need that encouragement. We need our, our 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 sometimes our smoldering embers kind of fan into flame, so that we'll go out and live faithfully for the glory of Christ. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.